There's an old saying that goes, if you do a job that you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Our next guest is Charmaine Watkiss, an outstanding black British artist born in London of Jamaican heritage. But it wasn't always like that. If you are a creative in the midst of the corporate or business world and long to make that leap, then Charmaine will surely inspire you. If you want to know more about Charmaine and her story, join us after the introduction. Hello and welcome. I'm Clayton M. Koch, and I'm also the host for The Cashflow Show, the radio show that's disguised in the shape of a podcast, but with so much more. Every week we'll be interviewing someone inspiring from the business world and finding out how they started in business, what their trials and tribulations were, and how they intend to grow their business in the future. We will also be finding out about what they do in their spare time, as well as asking them to pick a book, a film and a favourite single or album and to share their reasons for doing so. So why not join us at the Cashflow Show? It's not just a radio show, it's a whole new way of doing business. Hello Charmaine and welcome to the Cashflow Show. Hello Clayton and thanks for inviting me on the show. You're most welcome. Now I've known you for many years and we're going to get into that during the podcast. Yeah. But I'd love you to tell the Cashflow crew, who are the loyal listeners, who you are as a person and what you do as an artist. Oh, wow. Who am I as a person? I'm, gosh, I guess I see myself as creative. I've always been a, a creative person. As a child, I was always making things. So I guess creativity has always been at the forefront of what I do okay yes and so what I do now currently I'm an artist and I've been working professionally as an artist for two years now just over two years uh, my career took off over the pandemic and it was a huge career change for me right. so, so so yes so we met a long time ago so I was a digital designer when we met that's it and that's one of the things that we're going to go into because now we know who you are people want to get an idea of when somebody says that they're an artist people think lots of different things sometimes people think painting watercolors sometimes they think um, Banksy sometimes they think Damien Hirst they don't know really what an artist is because an mm. artist can be a multitude of things. What are the, let me try and sort of fucking use some fancy terms here. What are the, what's the medium that you work in? <laughs> You've been doing your homework, yes. <laughs> People are sitting there thinking, Clayton, you don't know anything about art. Shut up. <laughs> well, my medium is primarily pencil and paper. And I've always mixed it with a little bit of watercolour. Uh, recently, I've put a lot more watercolour in my work. So some people are beginning to call them paintings, but I see them as drawings. Right. Okay. So in order to make that transition, you mm. had to start somewhere. So yeah. when I knew you, as we alluded to earlier, you were in the corporate world. What were yeah. you doing there? Oh, I gosh, I've done so many different things. But I started out as a digital designer 1996, 97. Don't tell That's them because you look young. Don't, don't let them know. <laughs> don't, don't tell them. I know. It makes me sound ancient. I know. And, and it was kind of like no one knew what the internet was back then. 
And I had finished doing a film degree mid 90s and film work had dried up. So by the time I was invited to actually I started out my career working with artists, helping to create like little digital projects online. And it was using shockwave technology. So it's all these kind of little animated things. And there's just a small group of us who kind of knew what the internet was. And we were exploring, you know, what this new media could do and really pushing the boundary. So it was a really exciting time. And so my career, it was supposed to be only temporary because I thought, right, I'm going to go back to being a filmmaker, but it never happened. I then uh, got my first permanent job working for a publishing company that had a small digital arm. And uh, at the time I was doing like a lot of kind of consumer websites using Flash. Flash was in its early stages. It was like just turned to version two. So I was doing all these kind of cool little animated things. So throughout my career, it kind of changed. So I started out in the arts sector. Then I did a lot of stuff for consumer, worked in design agencies, worked client side. And then the last 10 years of my career, I worked in advertising. So I worked for big agencies such as MNC Saatchi. I, I freelanced with them for about four years. Um, and I worked with the WPP group. Um, so, so yes, I kind of done the whole gamut from design, designing web pages to um, doing touchscreen kiosk work, motion graphics. I've done some TV graphic work, done video editing because I had trained in film. You know, so my career kind of morphed because, as you know, Clayton, whenever there's any kind of threat of recession or kind of any kind of instability in um you know the financial markets the kind of design sector tends to be hit first and so you have to be yeah you have to be able to kind of move with the changes so luckily because i'd had other kind of digital skills before not just um layout design i was able to kind of move so for example in the financial crisis 2007 2008 i did a lot of video editing then and i was doing stuff for online gambling because during that crisis a lot of people wanted to gamble money for some reason so i was doing <laughs> so i was doing stuff for poker stars um all these kind of tutorials on how to download and install this kind of, you know, casino software. And, you know, so I was doing stuff like that. So so I wore lots of different hats over the years. And also I wasn't formally trained in graphic design. I learned um, on the job because I'd started early enough. I kind of grew alongside the industry. Wow. Yeah, so that's my story, really. Interesting. I read something about you that I did not know before. Mm. Is it true that you were a shoe designer? I was a long, a very long time ago, a very, very, very long time ago. I was a footwear designer. I went to Cordwainers College when no one knew, uh, no one knew about Cordwainers. So this is a long time ago. And there was only a handful of us who were on that course. I was in the same class as Patrick Cox. Oh. So we were kind of mates at one stage. And so, yes, so I did that. And then I set up my own studio. My first studio was in King's Cross. King's Cross used to be a really, really dodgy area. It used to <laughs> have a lot of prostitution. And there was, 
of gang activities and you know so it wasn't a nice place but I I set up my first studio there because while I was on my course I had won this design competition and part of my prize was to have an internship at the the Queen's Shoemakers. Ah. And so I did a collection small collection for Queen Shoemakers and so I thought um when I set up my business I'm going to have my um studio up the road from them because I knew because I'd worked there I knew that they used really really the finest kind of kid leather and suede um to make their shoes and they only cut one pair of shoes from the skin and then they got rid, rid of the rest so I wanted the the stuff that they were throwing out so I thought if I set up my studio within walking distance of them I can get their offcuts so that so it worked out really fine I didn't have to pay for materials so, so, that, so that was cool <laughs> but let's go back a slightly bit just a bit to yeah. King's Cross because remember yes. so with the power of the internet and the power of podcasting most mm. people who are listening or a lot of people listen are not necessarily going to be from the UK so yeah um if to describe it to people who are outside of the UK if you ever see movies of New York in the um, 70s and 80s that's what king's mm. cross was like you know in the it uk was rough, it man. was rough yeah. i remember yeah. going on some nights out there which i won't describe for a, <laughs> a family podcast which <laughs> me and my friends went there i think it was just before christmas just before christmas me and my friends went there for a night out and it's so gentrified now it's unbelievable yeah. It's super cool now with coal yeah. drops yard and everything, yeah. It's amazing. So you obviously had got lots of trajectories in terms of ending up where you were at this studio, but mm -hmm. I wanted to find out, have you always had an interest in art? When did your interest in art begin? I or I think I if I look back now, I think I've always wanted to be an artist. My mum uh tried to discourage me from going into a career that was arts based but i was making things from the time i could walk i made my first pair of shoes when i was like 6 years old i kind of drew around like a cereal packet and put like a cotton reel uh, stuck it as the heel as a high heel and i couldn't understand why it wouldn't stay on my foot but then later on i realized that you need to put a shank in there for it to you know keep it shaped but all that kind of stuff so that was my first ever you know and i was living in northampton at the time that kind of that was the home of the british footwear industry little did i know wow so so yeah it's kind of weird how things work out but my mum was a dressmaker she was also as you would probably remember you know the crochet stuff that was starched you know these kind of crochet objects my mum used to make stuff like that uh, um, on the side <laughs> yeah, yeah of course um, what people don't understand and people listening and we're going to get very much deeper into this thing just looking at what uh, Miss Charmaine has presented as uh, her pre-show questionnaire, and obviously after knowing her for a little while, there are lots of parallels between I, your host, Clayton Coke, and Charmaine in terms of culture, and um, there's a lot of synergy there. And what um, Charmaine's refer referring to is the... If you went into a, a West Indian household in 60s, 70s, maybe you're going into the 80s, you would see heavily embroidered and crocheted um, uh, 
artworks almost, if you like, that would be pummeled together, together with starch and made yes. to look absolutely beautiful. And woe betide you if you crossed anybody and messed with somebody's crocheting. That you know that would get you a, a, a that would get you excluded. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It was like because they they had the front room which no one could visit apart from. <laughs> So, <laughs> and then some some people still had plastic on their sofa and stuff like that. So it's just a really weird thing. Um, and it used to make this sound when you sat on it, you know. <laughs> exactly. But you've got to have been there to see it because it was. Yeah. Every time I see it and I see it in an exhibition, it just, it just gets to me emotionally because it's yeah. like, this is us. And, you know, yeah. this has come into the conversation a lot earlier than I, I, I planned it to. <laughs> but this is great because it's very, very important because obviously this this question of identity and, uh, and, and belonging and culture features heavily in your work, which we're going to talk about. So the crochet, yeah, so the crochet thing, I, my mum made things and she made, you know, she had this recipe for her starch. So no one could make the crochet and starch it the way my mum did. Some of her friends tried to do it, but no one, her mum was excellent at crochet. She taught me how to crochet as well. So I grew up watching my mum make things. So she made sculpture. So that was my earliest exposure to sculpture. And so as a kid, so I lived in Northampton between the age of four and eight. Uh, my, my dad died when I was four. We moved to Northampton, oh. came back to London when I was eight because uh, my mum missed London. And so, you know, so when I came back to London, I became very well spoken <laughs> because <laughs> in Northampton, I had this teacher who used to correct my English all the time. So, because I had a Jamaican accent because I always hung out with my mom's friends. I didn't like hanging out with other kids. I like hanging, I like to hang out with adults because um, I had, I was just one of these kids who was just really old for my age. So by the time I came back to London, went really well spoken, moved to Stockwell, um, went to this inner city school where a lot of the kids were really rough. So I had a hard time because I was well spoken. So, um, so at some stages, I really didn't ha always have people to play with. So I used to take chalk um, from um, the teacher's desk and I had like a little safety pin and I used to make these little sculptures. I used to scratch away and make these little sculptures. So, those, you know, those early years, um, so I always knew that I wanted to make things for a living. Um, and then um, the teacher said to my mum, oh, Charmaine has got a good eye for design. So I thought, oh, I'll become a designer. So that's at the age of eight, I decided I was going to become a designer because the teacher had said that I had a good eye for design. Um, I didn't realise that there was a difference between art and design, <laughs> that there was separation. To me, it was always one thing. So, so yes, yeah, so I'd always known that I wanted to work in the arts. Okay. Now, you've then gone through lots of jobs. You've got lots yes. of careers. You've had, you know, lots of feathers in your cap. Mm. You then decided that you were going to retrain as an artist. And I remember <laughs> the conversation, meeting you for a coffee. I, I can see it now. And, and we're sitting down, and you're telling me, oh, yeah, I'm going to retrain and I'm going to, to do this drawing degree. And I'm looking at you going, Sister, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, I'm no in the in my former life, I'd see myself as being quite risk averse. I'm mm. slightly different. I'm getting starting to get a bit crazy now. I'm uh, mm. uh, because I'm beginning to think, yeah, well, might as well try it. Can't. What's the worst that could happen? But yeah. with my risk averse self sitting down in front of you, I couldn't see. I could see what you were doing in terms mm. of being an artist because that made sense to me. Mm. But I come from a late payments, debt recovery, debt collection background, so it's all about the money. Mm. Now, not meaning that everything revolves around money, but how you get paid is, is how you sustain yourself. And yes. I couldn't see how that was going to work. We're going to come back to that conversation in terms of money a bit later on. But... Mm. When I spoke with you, you seemed very focused and very clear. And I said, mm, this sister's you. really going for it. She really mm. knows what she wants to do. Was it important for you to go back and retrain as an artist? Yes, it was. And I was inspired to do this. I suppose people would call it a midlife crisis, but it was around about the time, it was 2007, um, so it was just when the banking crisis was about to hit. Mm. I It was a series of events. Um, a relationship ended and then um, I was ill for a while and then I had to go into hospital for surgery, came out. And it was while I was recovering that I kept having re recurring dreams about learning different art techniques Okay. Because I'm kind of a very deeply intuitive person. I, I always, especially since my mom died, I always follow my instincts, and I, I kind of have uh, my own kind of spiritual beliefs. So mm -hmm. if I get a message, I will listen to that message, even though the rational part of my brain might be saying, "No, this is daft. It doesn't make sense." I have to trust what my deep intuitive senses telling me because at the same time that I knew that I um, needed to become an artist I decided to sell my flat and this uh, was at the height of the banking crisis that I decided to sell my flat because I imagined I had to imagine the life that I wanted to have and so the place that I was living, I knew wouldn't allow me to have the life that I wanted to have. So it had to be a whole complete lifestyle change. And it was frightening. I mean, I do things, I do take risks. I take risks, but they're not, I don't just, I'm going to contradict myself because I was about to say I don't just throw myself off the edge, but I do in a way. But I do um, consider what are the consequences going to be of my actions? And then I decide, will I be able to live with the worst case scenario? Um, so it is this kind of evaluation that I go through. My rational side of my brain has to, presents me with all of these kind of what if, what if, what if. And then I have to then say to myself, am I prepared to risk that? Uh, and for me, I... I've always been a person that um, I don't want to have any regrets because I think ultimately um, you tend to regret the things that you don't do, not the things that you do, because the things that you do 
if they don't work out, um, there's a learning lesson. There's something to learn from that. And there's a degree of growth because if you take that lesson with you to the next thing, then that equals growth. I decided that I needed to retrain. So I started taking drawing classes. And interestingly enough, when I decided that I needed to be an artist I knew I wanted to learn how to draw the figure well because I'd always engaged with drawing I've always drawn um but I wanted to learn how to draw the figure well okay but it wasn't my intention to end up as an artist who draws I just wanted to learn how to draw the figure well for my own satisfaction so I did um some drawing classes at um Morley College and one of the tutors I had, um, he's now a very well-known artist, Denzel Forrester. Okay. Um, his career recently took off, um, but he'd been making work for more than 30 years. Cool. But he, yeah, he, he, he's a great artist, um, but his career took off about five, six years ago. Um, and so I did his drawing classes. And then I started doing printmaking at the same time. And then over the years, maybe for about six years, I was doing classes at the Royal Drawing School, um, evening classes. I started off doing three classes a week. And then it must have been 2014. I did a course at City Lit with an artist called Simon English. I just felt I had to do his course. Something inside said do his course. So I did his course. It was called Illustration with Simon English. I had no interest in becoming an illustrator, but I did his course. He's an artist who works with drawing. And then I had this strong feeling that I needed to ask him if he does kind of one-on-one -on -one kind of mentoring. So the last day of the course, I sucked up the courage and asked him, he said, of course, darling. He said, you know, come to my studio. So um, and he said, bring any kind of works that you've got with you. So by the, this time, I had had some prints that I'd made. I'd made a couple of artist books and things and brought to his studio. And he said that my work was great. He said my drawings are great as well. And he said, but he said that I feel that you're answering, you're responding to your work as a designer and not as an artist. Heavy. Yes. <laughs> And he said, because at the time, I was so desperate to get out of digital, I was going to... Uh, for this printmaking MA and he says no 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 he said I don't see you doing that he said I see you being you know a fine artist contemporary artist and you probably might move into sculpture or um, film or installation and when he said all of this I burst into tears and I thought this man really can see who I am and so he recommended that I do the foundation at City Lit. It's a part-time foundation. He said that he's not recommending the course because he feels that I need to do it in terms of lack of technical ability. He said, you have the ability, but he said it will give you the space to actually get who you are as an artist. I thought, okay, so I did the course and it was just over a year and a quarter. So I finished 2015 and I actually picked painting and sculpture as my two pathways. I felt that I had disastrous time in both. And so in the final term, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to do something in drawing because everyone keeps telling me how good my drawings are. 
And uh, my practice actually started on that course. Little did I know. <laughs> but uh, my final course, my final work, I decided to investigate where I live. I live in Bermondsey, South East London. South East London, South East. Sorry. South East, yeah. And, and <laughs> Bermondsey, <laughs> back in the day, you couldn't go there as a black person. It was rough ads and there's a lot of white gangs and stuff. It's rough. You couldn't yeah, go well, there. Well, I, I know it's rough because I'm from Lewisham, so I know where Bermondsey yes. is. <laughs> so at the end, of, I'm from South London as well. So, yes. yeah, I'm feeling that. Yeah, Bermondsey was... It was a bit like sort of National Front sort of British movement type of, yeah. Yes. Yeah, people. Yes. So, um, so I, (laughs) so I decided, I wanted to find out why was there a Jamaica Road in Bermondsey? So I then did all this research, went to a local history library and everything else and discovered, uncovered that the whole borough of Southwark had strong connection to the transatlantic slave trade because of box and everything else. They used to bring in a lot of stuff um, from the plantations, tobacco, coffee. There used to be a lot of coffee houses in Tooley Street around London Bridge. And the whole of the city of London, as we know it today, was built on the back of slavery. Exactly. And I'm going to stop you there because... I want to go deep into this subject because um, I've got this on my notes here and it's really quite an interesting situation. So bear with me a moment. Mm. Okay. We discussed earlier about um, Jamaica Road and Bermondsey and London's links to the slave trade. I'm going to go a little bit forward to go back because a lot of your work is about the African-Caribbean diaspora. When did your parents come to the UK? Uh, my dad was a lot older than my mum, so he came in the mid-50s. And my mum came here in 1962. Perfect. That's the answer that I'm looking for. Mm. Because my parents arrived in 1962 as well. So um, yeah. uh, I, I can see exactly that. was, And there was a big reason for a lot of this thing. I mean, your dad probably came during the original sort of early first wave of Windrush people that came from the Caribbean. And Mm. what I did, and this is what feeds into some of your work, I saw a programme recently on the BBC with David Olasoga. And Mm. for those of you outside of the UK, he is a British historian, writer, broadcaster and filmmaker who specialises in a lot of black history and especially black British history. And he was allowed access to go through home office records of the original Windrush years and found the call to the Commonwealth that we all associate as, are we first generation, I suppose? Uh, um, um, Black British, I guess. That we associate with our parents being asked to come to the UK actually wasn't meant for black people. And yeah, it, it... it put a lot, a big spin on things for me because it was actually meant for the white or Caucasian members mm-hmm. of the Commonwealth. Yeah. So that's people from South Africa, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. But mm. sadly, uh, the black people, we didn't get the memo. So yeah. we are where we are and we're talking on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and also around, you know, the Windrush era, the so-called Windrush era, there were more Polish people and Italian people who came to live in Britain and they were black people and you you know our parents generation spoke english 
and yet we weren't allowed or you know there was a problem with us integrating into you know what was basically our home uh because we've been british since 1955 when jamaica um was handed over to the british you know we have been british all of our you know all of our forefathers were british that's people that's the thing people don't get their head around because you know there's this whole idea of us being migrants we're not migrants you know we're british we're born british for generation and then you know so this whole thing where you know there's a lot of polish people that came um during that era as well didn't speak english but somehow they have kind of integrated into british society but we're still other so you know there's all of these kind of nuances that people have to look at where we're more british than a lot of so-called british people of course if but... you look back yes so you know it's yeah it's it's very strange it's a well, strange it is because but it comes to the heart of britishness mm. the fact is it's it, let's take our african american cousins so mm. when you go to america especially with the way that our accents are specifically mm. it, it tends to throw them incredibly it, it, yeah. it literally does it they, yeah. you know and some people who are a bit more well traveled are better at it mm. and better at understanding that there are black british people and there have been black british people since the 1600s yeah. um but just incredibly small pockets but mm. i think that the difficulty is when non-black people or not brown non-brown people come to the uk they're seen as bringing something mm. whereas for us as individuals we're seen as taking something yes so right. even the way that we're dealt with as as individuals as people we're seen as we're never seen as providers we're never we're never seen as people that that give something we're seen as people that take or in, in yeah. terms of business we're never seen as the people that provide business we're seen as the consumer yeah and it's yeah. for example if people look at when we get to elections you will see that a tory politician i use that as an example will go to south hall they may go to islington or they may go to stamford hill which mm -hmm. are certain pockets of certain demographics but you won't go to and i use brixton as example even though that's changed mm -hmm. dramatically you won't mm -hmm. go there because you don't believe that those people have anything to offer you Yes. So you're, yeah. you're, and this is why when people try to promote the black vote, because the black vote appears to have no value, mm. that's why then people then don't necessarily, they're not keen on necessarily giving you the advantage and the standing point. Because I, I read something somewhere that completely changed my mind about politics. What it was, I think the statement from the gentleman was, was that black people won't change politics by voting, or they won't change their situation by voting. They will only change their situation by lobbying mm. and you see and they're absolutely right because the problem mm. is is because the black pound isn't invested in the black lobby and there is no lobby if you find that this if you go to westminster i'm sure there's a russian lobby there's a chinese <laughs> lobby there's a whatever your your demographic there is a lobby but there isn't a black lobby so therefore there isn't a black lobby with black pounds and black influence in order to yeah. make things happen and that's where I think the mistake is, because in America, as we know, everything is about lobbying.
Yes, and also African Americans really have a voice. I think in this country, uh, with our parents' generation, they were so busy surviving, and also there was this notion of going back home because the work that I made, they didn't come to stay, speaks about that because a lot of people came here thinking that they would be working for five, six years and then go back home. The very famous five-year plan. That's right. And then our generation, we weren't particularly invested here either because we were treated as foreigners as well. I mean, I used to have a lot of um, white people say to me, oh, you speak really good English for one of them. Um, you know, that, those kind of comments. So Microaggressions. Oh. Yeah, so I never really wanted to stay in this country either. So I think that, um, you know, unfortunately, the knock-on effect is that there hasn't been, in some cases, deep enough roots to say, yes, this is our home, because there's always been this notion. And even now, I still think, do I want to grow old in this country. I still have that kind of in the back of my mind. Um, so I think that's part of, uh, I see the next generation, they definitely um, see themselves as English and that this is their country and everything else. There is a difference. But I think our generation, the bridge, there's still this kind of Will we, won't we, you know, this kind of in-out dance, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's an assimilation thing, remember? Yes. Ba back yeah. in, in our day, oh, bloody hell, this is going to make me sad. Oh, no, I know. Bro, those grey hairs are <laughs> creeping through. In my day and in your day as well, it was, you know, people were called Mike, Steve and Dave and guys were called, um, you know, Trevor, Leroy and Errol. Mm -hmm. you, 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 there was a clear disparity yeah. between who was who and what was what. And now there seems to be this general merging. You know, I, I don't know. It's a bit weird because we knew that we were black. We knew that we had a, when we travelled, a British passport. But we mm. knew that things weren't quite right. Mm. I remember my Aunt Phyllis. When we were kids, you talk about having a, a Jamaican accent. Mm. And... I remember my Auntie Phyllis basically making, spending a long time every time, because obviously you grow up with your parents. The mm. first language that you learn is the language that your parents speak. Mm. So obviously we're speaking Jamaican Patois. And mm -hmm. I remember my Auntie Phyllis going, you must speak English or you must speak English. <laughs> and mm. really sort of driving that home as yes. a, and, and the way that you spoke. And I remember see, seeing... Uh, a video of Maxi Priest, the reggae singer, who mm. was very, very big in the 80s. Mm. And he's from Lucian as well. And he was saying that when he was a kid, in the house was Jamaica. And outside, when you stepped outside the house, you were in London. Yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's this bilingual, it was two cultures. Yes, definitely. Because um, now Jamaican culture is very much part of British culture. You see a lot of white people using kind of Jamaican slang that slips into, work, into the language. And, you know, even newsreaders, uh, I saw the newsreader said, I thought, what? But, you know, that's kind of that's kind of what I would have said growing up. But, you know, and... They discovered, um, you know, ackee and saltfish and, you know, all of the stuff 
that and jerk we, chicken. Yeah, but it's taken them like 30, 40, 50 years to discover our food, and our food's always been here. Our food's been here that long. Yes, so but, it's only now yeah. that people have discovered, you know, and they um, call it goat curry. It's curry goat. You know, it's not goat curry. Curry goat, please, get it right. You know. <laughs> well, I remember, and I Hugh Whittingstock, Whittingstock, I can't remember his name now, it will come back yeah. to me. He, he made a trip to Birmingham and he went, made a trip to Birmingham, to the, the black communities in Birmingham, because he wanted to know about this goat curry. Mm. And he kept on stopping old West Indian men on the street going, I'd like to sample this goat curry. And the man said, no man, no man, a curry goat, a curry goat you want, a curry goat you want. <laughs> And that was, it was fascinating because obviously he'd gone in with this completely misunderstood what it was about. I, I do give him one thing. He was Hugh Fernley Whittingstall. That's his name. Mm. I do give him credit because he was very respectful and he was very keen to learn about the culture and what it was mm. about. And obviously to, to learn how it was cooked properly because mm. he, he went to the source. But yeah. Yeah, our food has been here for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years. It's yeah. been here forever. But, a long time. but remember, most people, and you will know this growing up, and I know mm -hmm. this growing up, didn't have black friends. Yeah, I know. They didn't have black friends. So there was no way that you were going to be able to, you couldn't go into a West Indian shop because it was a, so where you want. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so th that would be. That would be the outcome. So they, they were too scared to go in. And that was that yeah. demarcation that protected us to a certain extent. Yeah, you know? there was. That. I, I did have a couple of white friends growing up because a lot of black kids didn't think I was black enough because of the way I spoke. And also I had ambition. And, you know, for some reason, you're supposed to have ambition because uh, I always thought about wanting to go to university because I had a friend, um, white friend, Alison Clegg, one who talked about going to university so I thought oh I want to go to university as well so um so I did have a couple of black friends who used to come round my house and so when my mum was making patty and you know curry chicken and everything else they had that and then their, their parents had to come round to my mum's house and say could you please not feed um, you know, my kids because they don't want to eat our food anymore? So, <laughs> because my friends were saying, do you eat like this all the time? I said, yeah, it's just normal. And they were thinking, wow, because it's like a big... Because food in the 70s, let's face it, it was, was rubbish. terrible. It God, was rubbish. It was 70s rubbish. and 80s, the food was terrible. You know, because people are still having boiled beef and cabbage and things like that. And school dinners, it was like really bad. I mean, there was a guy in my class... Um, uh, this white guy in my class, he used to like school dinners because he said it was better than his mum's cooking. And school <laughs> dinners was terrible. And none of the children of colour would have eat a school dinner. So then they had to start getting cooks who were black or who were kind of Mediterranean or whatever to do the school dinners. Because I went to a school, Stockholm Manor, I think it was the most integrated school in the 70s and 80s because it's normal now to have schools with people from different nationalities around the world but when I was growing up it was rare so my school was one of the few that had I think we had I can't remember how many languages 15 languages spoken wow. in my school 
and how many different nationalities. Um, so, so yes. Yeah, so when I, by the time I went to secondary school, um, I met people from all around the world and that made me want to travel mm. um, and learn about different cultures. And, you know, to this day, I still love traveling and I travel on my own and stuff like that. I really love it. So, um, so that school, apart from it being the worst school in London, it was horrible. I hated the school for that, but I loved it for the one thing that it introduced me to um, people from around the world and made me want to travel and see the world. So that was the one good thing I got from that school. When we spoke on the last section, we spoke about how your experiences and your parents' experiences being part of the diaspora informed your work. Because mm. you've got some sort of very e evocative titles. You know, for example, you mentioned briefly, you know, they never came to stay. Is it that, is mm. that the correct title? Um, uh, they didn't come to they stay. Didn't, they didn't come to stay, excuse me. So things like that, obviously those memories that you have, you're able to channel those memories and I, I've seen your art I've been fortunate enough to see your art on uh, many occasions and mm. it speaks to me I can look at a piece of art for example I will look at something an abstract thing like something a Mondrian um, mm. uh, and I like that because it mm. the idea of boxes and shapes and it kind of suits my mentality I'm a bit strange like that but it kind of mm. suits me but I like its efficiency but it doesn't necessarily move my soul. Whereas mm. when I'm looking at the stuff that you do, I can see myself in it. Mm. You know, yeah. I can see, you know, you, because you appear in your own work, and that's something that I want to come on to as well, the fact mm. that you appear in your own work. Mm. But I, I know it's you, but to me, it's my aunt, it's my sister, it's mm. my mum, it's my cousins. It's, you know, it's like you've, you've morphed yourself into the black woman. Mm. Um, yeah. And uh, as I said, I'm not an art critic, so I can't tell you, I can only give you the vibe that I'm feeling. And that's what I see when I see that. And that person is almost like the spirit guide, if you like, mm. or to take you through the, point, uh, the painting or, and it takes you through the drawing. However, mm. you then leave little clues all the way through. Yeah. And you, the little clues that you, I know that, I know that, I know that fruit, I know that object, I know what, why that, that thing is there. And then, then it talks, it talks on one level and it talks on a deeper level to those people who were there. Mm. Um, and as I said, I'm not an art critic, so people say, oh, he knows nothing about this type of thing <laughs> at all. But that's, that's the message. It's like you're leaving a trail of breadcrumbs. It's lovely to hear that because for me, uh, engagement with my audience is really important because I always think that, you know, when you walk through life, either you have a message for someone or someone has a message for you. Yes. Um, to hear that, it just makes my heart warm up and, you know, I'm just, I'm really pleased to hear that. And it is my intention because I want to speak about our heritage in ways that people haven't done before. It all started with uh, my very first drawing that came out of my course at City Lit, um, the one where I was uh, talking about uh, 
Bermondsey and why Jamaica Road is called Jamaica Road. So um, when I'd done all of that research, I didn't know what to do. I was overwhelmed with the amount of information that I'd found. And I had formed a crypt group with um, a few other artists on the course who were a similar age to me and had careers before. And one person said, oh, why don't you do a self-portrait? And it kind of made sense, but I didn't know how I was going to do it. So then I had to take a couple of weeks off to earn some money. So I did this freelance gig. And as well, I was doing a freelance gig that the idea formulated that I could perhaps project things onto a person wearing a coat. And then by the time I got back to the course, I thought, you know what, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to do something that's life-sized. I've never done a big drawing before. I'm going to challenge myself and do something that's life-sized. And so I did an image of me, but even though it was me, I knew then it wasn't a self-portrait. When I made, when I was making the work, I knew it wasn't a self-portrait because I was speaking about a collective experience. So I had kind of drawn all of these symbols on this person's coat, and it's all about how the city of London was basically built, you know, mm. and where you know about the commerce where the money came from the docks you know even the royal family's involvement in the slave trade you know all of these different things that kind of fed into what we know as the city of london and it was on this coat of this person um looking out into the distance and at the same time i went along the thames foreshore at bermondsey wall and did some mudlarking so mudlarking is when you basically you're excavating mm. the Thames because the Thames has never really been excavated. So you can go digging around there and you'll find things. So I found all of these kind of clay pipes um, that kind of date back to um, the 16th century. Um, and I found bits of pottery. Uh, and so all of this history is just embedded within, you know, foreshore of the Thames right. and so I made like a little uh I'm just looking at it on my wall it's a box and it's almost like an archive box with all of these little things in it and I displayed that alongside my drawing for my um end of year show for um that foundation at City Lit okay. and so that work got me onto my MA at Wimbledon um okay. yes Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. That's good to hear. We found out the background to your work, what inspires you, what drives you. Now, it wouldn't be the cash flow show if we didn't get onto the business side. Mm. So we hear about Damien Hurst and Banksy, which I've discussed previously. But how do artists actually earn their money? Do they get, you know, a, a hat and gather around it? Or do, do they get people to swipe their cards? How, how do artists actually earn their money? Well, they, they make work and hopefully they get to sell the work too. And so there are so many different ways that artists work. Uh, some, people, some artists work part-time teaching to their practice some other artists do a lot of commissions to earn work some artists have an agent some artists 
like myself, have a gallery who takes care of all of the sales. So there are various ways. Some people, actually, there are some artists who don't have gallery representation, but manage to build their profile so enough people come to them to work. So I'm thinking about a friend of mine who she'd been making work for 20, yeah, just over 20 years. And she's recently gotten gallery representation, but she had managed to sustain her practice initially by teaching part-time. Then she did a lot of public commissions because she does a lot of uh, huge drawings on um, in public spaces. So she used to uh, get a lot of commissions doing that. Um, and she now has representation. So it's lots of different ways. You just have to, you have to, it's a hustle because no two artists' career are the same. It's not like design where you can say, okay, once you've kind of um, done your design degree, you can, you know, get a job in an agency, work your way up, and then maybe create your own agency or do this or freelance or whatever. It's not, it's not as straightforward as that. There's loads of different, you know, it is a bit like being Del Boy. You, you, you've got to have <laughs> lots of different as an artist um, if you want to make it work. Totally. So. I totally get that. So a lot of the word on the street now is about NFTs. And for those who don't know, it's non-fungible tokens. Um, mm. And basically what it does is it's from what I can see, you give somebody a license, they don't actually own the piece of art, but they've got um, a, a license to, to you. It's like a print almost. Mm. A digital style is like a print, but basically yeah. you don't own. So if you get a print of a Helmut Newton, I don't know why he's coming to my head, um, um, Helmut Newton picture or whatever the case may be, then ultimately mm. it's still Helmut Newton's picture, but the fact is is that you've just got a print of it. And that's what mm. NFTs are in the digital world. What do you think of them as an artist? Because you're, you're obviously working in a contemporary space. Those are the new thing. What's your take on it? I know, because I kind of, I left the digital realm for a reason, because I want to work analogue. And to me, um, I, I don't know, there's always, I don't know, for me it sounds like a bit of a scam pyramid scheme kind of thing, you know, I don't know, I mean, it's it's not for me, um, I I think if, if I make work, if I've spent the effort making something, I would like someone to have the physical work and appreciate it, I mean, I, I would go as far as making uh reproduction um but having something that just exists in a digital space um from an original work of art is not really it's not really my thing no so now we're going to move on to the what are you like section which should be really introduced by cockney voice um uh, um, you've made some very interesting choices and I want to see if you remember what they are. Do you remember what you put as your favourite album? I've written them down here, actually, because okay, I thought, this is oh, good. I don't want to forget. So uh, what did I put? Because I put anything by Earth, Wind & Fire, because to yeah, me, we... <laughs> Earth, Wind & Fire, that kind of 
that that is my formative years listening to Earth, Wind and Fire. And the thing I liked about Earth, Wind and Fire is that they were pushing the boundaries of music. They used to have like these little African rhythms or these little, you know, other rhythms in their sounds that they used to just kind of throw in. And you kind of think, wow, what is that? Uh, these little interludes. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, and people... it's the interludes because now I I like all kinds of music, but particularly world music and and jazz because you know their sound is very jazzy. So and I've got Earth, Wind and Fire to thank for that because they have the whole world of music within their whole uh, back catalogue. So yeah. Right. So you could, and you've also put some a couple of other things as well. Yeah, Dexter One saw Life on Mars. Ah! <laughs> you see, that, Dad's Bunker. So you know, or any of that kind of. Oh, you see, you this know. is when I saw that. I was just jumping around the room, um, uh, <laughs> because you went up in my estimation tenfold. I thought you were cool before, <laughs> but now you're on that level. Um, yeah, Life on Mars, Dexter Wanzel, man. Ah, oh, amazing. For those that you don't know who Dexter Wanzel is, Dexter Wanzel is a keyboard player and synthesizer maestro supreme who made records in the early 70s i think he's still alive and he's still making yes records. he's still alive still yeah. making it um uh, but his peak years were in the 70s on the philadelphia international label various hits there from him but a massive hit with um life on mars which is a jazz funk instrumental but yeah. also um uh, a vocal record that he did i think with is it Cynthia Biggs, I can't remember, called The Sweetest Pain. Yes, um, uh, yes. Yeah, which is absolutely yeah, beautiful record. Beautiful, yeah. But you've also come um, full circle and up to date and you've mentioned Voyager by Moonchild. Yes, I like Moonchild. Yeah. It, this kind of neo-soul yeah. kind of sound, I really, really like it. And I kind of wonder why is it called neo-soul, but maybe because all the artists are white. I don't know. Not but, really. Not really. Because yes. remember, the neo-soul thing came with D'Angelo, D'Angelo, yes. sorry, I should say, Erica Badu. It's, yeah, um, that was the early neo-soul. Yeah, but the early but yeah, but now but it's now become. It seems like a lot of white artists are, are, are kind of dropping that sound. Yeah, because it's and, it's timeless, and the fact yes, is, the, the the problem with black art, especially when it comes to black music, we love to invent things. We're a very creative mm -hmm. race of people. However, we have a problem, and our problem is this. And people are going to hate me. So, brothers and sisters. Don't hit me up in the comments. Don't hit me up anywhere else. <laughs> just listen to the facts and take it as if I'm Kevin Samuels. They just accept it. We have a problem and our problem is this. We create lots of things and then we discard them. Mm. And it's not fashionable anymore. Yeah. Because, for example, it's like taking, you know, blues. Oh, we don't want to do that. That's poor people's music. We don't want to listen to mm. blues anymore. Then somebody else takes it up. Jazz. Yeah. Oh, we don't want to do jazz anymore, man. Nobody wants to play jazz. That's boring music. Hip-hop, mm. somebody else takes it up. Whatever we, we come up with, we have a way of discarding it and not valuing yeah. it. We don't yeah. respect our art. Yeah. Because maybe it comes easy to some of us or maybe because we don't see that there's the money attached to it. But we create incredible art. Mm. Incredible art. And... Um, Yes, and I, t I do take your point. It, it's now become a thing. Now everybody is doing this neo soul thing, and yeah, and 
And yeah, yeah you're right, Erica Badu 20 years ago. Of I course. mean, that was like the start of it and yeah. D'Angelo. Yeah. Um, but I think that in the times that we're living in, you know, we've come out of this kind of major traumatic event, you know, and and, and which revealed a lot, you know, oh, yes. um, George Floyd and everything else. Um, so to come out of that, um, for me, listening to this music, it's just very soothing to the soul. I think, you know, it's like a, because it's kind of like a healing sound. Soul is. music is music for the soul. It's food for the soul. Yes, definitely. So, you know, I think, you know, it's it's kind of what the world needs now. It's just gentle music and, you know, music that makes you feel nice. Again, that's why I listen to Earth, Wind & Fire, because it makes me feel good inside. Yes. It makes me feel happy. Um, and there's a lot of um, black music that went through a really dodgy phase in the 90s <laughs> oh, where like, you know, the B word and the ho word, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's like, no. <laughs> I think that's that's where things went wrong. The, the problem yeah. is is because 20, 30 years ago, you couldn't make that kind of music. You couldn't make it, so therefore it didn't exist. But now what we've got is a situation, because people know that you can say it and you can get paid for it, Yeah. people then have lost their complete minds and they're just putting mm. it on everything. And the fact is, it goes, no. Because the problem is, it's not good quality music. No. It's just music that at the end of the day, in 10, 20 years' time, nobody will ever listen to, nobody will play again. Mm. And that's it. It's, it'll be of its time, you know? So. Yeah. So let's move on to your 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 book because you've chosen the alchemist if I'm right. Yes, that's right. Um and I love that book uh, Paulo Coelho and um I used to read this a lot when I was pursuing my art career when I was kind of training doing all the evening classes and you know um just because sometimes when you're doing something um and you you're wanting to make a change but you don't know what the outcome is and it's all scary and you know people think you're you've gone crazy and stuff like that you need something to hold on to yeah. <laughs> so no. this was my like my torch light you know right. in in the in the days where it was dark and i couldn't see where i was going oh, brilliant. and um and, you know, the summary of this book, it's an Andalusian shepherd boy named Santiago dreams of a treasure while in a ruined church. He consults a gypsy fortune teller about the meaning of a recurring dream. The woman interprets it as a prophecy, telling the boy that he will discover a treasure at the Egyptian pyramids. And so the book is about him searching for that treasure. And um, and all the obstacles that he faces um, along the way. It's a very mystical book, uh, and I'm you know I'm into kind of all that kind of stuff cool. anyway. So it speaks to me on a deep level. So I could kind of identify with this boy going out on his own, um, you know, to seek this treasure because that's exactly what I was doing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Most definitely. Brilliant. Yeah. And you've also got one book here that said that you are currently reading, which I found fascinating because I've I've seen the book. I haven't read it, but I've seen some of the videos. And that's Never Split the Difference by Chris mm -hmm. Voss. 
Mm. Now, that's some hardcore negotiation. <laughs> for those that don't know, Chris Voss used to be a FBI... New sorry. Chris Voss used to be an FBI negotiator. Because <laughs> um, yes, uh, he set up this organisation called the Black Swan Group. And it's supposed to be this kind of Black Swan move that you can use on people. I haven't got to that bit yet in the book. But... Um, <laughs> But I like, because I don't really like conventional business books because they're a bit dry. Um, but I like books that are about human psychology. And so, and that's what Chris Voss understands. He understands what we innately need as human beings. And so as a hostage negotiator, he has to appeal to that in order to, you know, because he's talking about lives that could be, you of know, course. at risk. So I find him fascinating. Um, and I thought, you know, I'm running my own business, so I need to have skills and everything that we encounter every day is a negotiation. You know, when we interact with other people, you know, at some level, it's a negotiation, isn't of, it? Of course, everything's a negotiation. So, I mean... So it made sense, yeah. It does, because effectively you're selling your art, you're selling a part of your personality, you want yeah. it to go to a good home, but you yeah. also obviously need to eat so you can make more art. Yeah. And everything is a negotiation. I mean, in the reason why it appeals to me in terms of that is that when I deal with people in terms of late payments, that's a mm. negotiation. There are certain people that you are never going to, 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 to negotiate with or there are certain people that you end up having to take them to court. That's when the negotiation takes place when they're in front of a judge. You know, the amount of litigation that happens when you negotiate with people for months and months, they get outside the courtroom and then it's like, oh, can we talk? Mm. You know, and you've still yeah. got to be open to that all the way. So it yes. is very interesting. So there's mm. some great selections there. Great selections. So I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions now. Mm. So I'm, yeah, I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions now, just basically to get more from you in order that I can share with the audience. So how would you describe your art to someone who has never seen it? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Um, oh, all right. Okay. I, I'm a I'm a lot I'm a lot deeper than I look. <laughs> <laughs> well, the first thing I say to people is I draw myself, but they're not self-portraits. So that's kind of my elevator pitch. And then people get intrigued, and then they start asking me more questions. Brilliant. So if I summarize it as one thing, I'll just say I draw myself, and I map stories onto these figures, onto these characters, and the stories are connected with the African Caribbean diaspora experience. Excellent. Well, after seeing your art and listening to the music, seeing the books you've chosen, I would use the clumsy name of Afro-Caribbean Futurism. Yeah. It's not brilliant, <laughs> but all I could come up with at half past nine this morning. <laughs> so, as I said, I'm not going to win any um, art critics awards, but, you know, it's nice to hear your take on it. The person is me, but it's not me. With that being said, what's your advice for someone wishing to make a leap into creativity? Because you've done really well, to be totally honest. I mean, you, you mm. know, you've got your own point of view on this because you say it's taken me a bloody long time. But, <laughs> but you've done that. You've made that childhood dream 
from cereal packets and cotton reels into real art in real galleries with real people. Yeah, yeah. It's a 12 year process, but it's kind of weird because when you get picked up by a gallery, it feels like it's overnight. But then I've had to remind myself that I took 12 years of just taking little steps. Mm. So I would say to anybody, um, have a plan. Um, doesn't matter how, doesn't have to be a detailed plan because really you can't plan for everything. Uh, but if you have a strong enough intention, I believe the universe will always help you um, because you'll start attracting the right people. If you're focused, because people know when you're focused, they can feel that in. And so if you're focused you will then start to attract the right people, but make small steps every day. I used to kind of do exercises like um, I used to think if somebody were a fly on the wall, could they tell that I want to become an artist by the things that I'm doing? So, you know, because when you work freelance, you're working long hours sometimes. So sometimes I didn't have the energy to even do a little drawing. Uh, but what I would do is during my lunch break, maybe do a little bit of research that would help me um you know feed into what I wanted to do as an artist so find some little way each day to kind of fulfill um that dream you know just take that little step closer each day excellent excellent so what are your plans for the rest of 2022 what galleries have you got lined up uh, right. So my gallery, Tiwani Contemporary, they have just opened a second space in Lagos. Ooh. Yes, <laughs> in Nigeria. So um, I'm going to be in a group show there in May. Uh, so I'm, I'm currently making work for that. Excellent. Uh, also, uh, the British Museum bought one of my works. Wow. So um, I'm going to be in a group show that opens this week, actually, 17th of March. And uh, it's going to be in Gallery 90 at the British Museum. And it's basically a selection of their new acquisitions. How long does that last for? Uh, so that show is going to be on until August. Oh, that's great. Excellent. That gives people yeah. plenty of time to catch you there. Plenty of time. Got no excuse. So, And also I've written a piece for the British Museum magazine, um, which comes out of April. So the next edition of British Museum magazine. I've written about um, uh, a piece that's in the Africa Gallery um this uh, wooden door so i've written a whole article about that so look out for that okay excellent that's good to yeah. know so where can people get in touch with you what are your socials how can uh, do you have a website what can they how yes, can they find you uh, my website is charmainewatkiss.com that's all um, one word yes all one word and I'm on Instagram at Ms. Watkiss, MS, MS Watkiss. I don't really use my Twitter anymore. The Twitter handle is exactly the same as my Instagram handle. So that's it. Yeah. Excellent. So more importantly, we know where people can get in touch with you. We know the rest mm. of your plans for 22. Where can people buy your work? Because you can't, if you don't get money, <laughs> you don't sell that work, then you can't make any more. And the people in Lagos will be well unhappy. Yes, they'll have to contact my gallery because they, they handle all of my sales. So, to so, so the name of your gallery again? 
Tiwani Contemporary Gallery. Right, so that's T-I-W-A-N-I. Yes. Contemporary. Yes. Right. Tiwani Contemporary, ladies and gentlemen, where you can um, purchase Ms. Um, what Kisses work. I hope you all go down there and, you know, show her your love and support by buying her work in sufficient numbers so we can <laughs> see more of her. I could talk to you for ages and I've kept you for a long time and it's been an amazing discussion. I really, really thank you for taking the time and opportunity. I know you've got a lot that's going on in in your business life and in your artistic life. And for you to take that opportunity does mean a lot to me. And I thank you for that. Oh, thanks for asking me. Uh, it's just been great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. We've come to the end of the Cashflow Show for today, but I would like to say thank you to our guests for taking the time to share their knowledge, wisdom and insight. If you loved what you've heard on this week's episode, please head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts and leave a five-star review and feedback as it really does help. Whilst you're there, listen to some of our other episodes which you are bound to enjoy. We want to make this the go-to podcast for entrepreneurs wherever they are in the world and spreading the word really is the best way to grow our show and our community to achieve greater things. Be sure to join us next time for real people, real business, real talk.